To everyone tuning in, welcome. This is Silas, your e-journalism social work advocate. You're listening to the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast, the program that promotes, celebrates, uplifts, and highlights the social work profession. This podcast aims to educate the general public to the vital contributions professional social workers make in every aspect of society every day. Our special guest today is Ms. Danielle Kirk, founder and president of the Living Light Institute, otherwise known as Lilly. With a professional background in marketing and sales for over two decades, a BA from Emory University, and an MA in Middle East politics, Ms. Kirk has proven experience in a myriad of industries, including diplomacy, law, software, and luxury residential real estate. Having survived two near-death traumas and six suicidal depressions, Ms. Kirk was shocked to find the magnitude of mental illness and addiction so widespread and yet the most neglected field of health care. In fact, more progress has been made destigmatizing and treating AIDS, which has been around for less than 40 years, than mental health conditions, which has existed for centuries. In response, Ms. Kirk is spearheading a global initiative to destigmatize mental health conditions while providing access to reliable resources to those in need and their loved ones. The Living Light Institute is not only dedicated to a sophisticated public awareness campaign to destigmatize this pandemic, it will also provide an innovative approach to recovery with a comprehensive 12 month protocol. It is my distinct pleasure to introduce our guest for this evening, Ms. Danielle Kirk. Ms. Kirk, I'd like to welcome you to the show. This is the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast. And I'd like to start out by asking you what inspired you to create the Living Light Institute and why did you switch the title from destigmatizing mental illness and addiction to destigmatizing mental health conditions? Hi, thank you so much for having me. This is really very special. First and foremost, renaming mental illness and addiction to mental health conditions actually represents part of our effort to destigmatize the mental health condition. When you think mental illness and addiction, there has a, a negative connotation to it, which is really important when we start talking about mental health conditions differently. It will help us destigmatize it on a global level. Uh, in terms of the inspiration that I had for Lily, I think the best way to illuminate it in a comprehensive way is to read the preface for my book, 18, which chronicles the 18 years that I went through, as you mentioned, eight near-death episodes, two traumas, and six suicidal depression. So I'd like to take the opportunity to read the preface of the book. It's called 18, and it will be due out in May of 2020 in time for Mental Health Awareness Month. Awesome. Preface. Christmas 2018. I'm in New York City. I just woke up in my hotel room. The curtains are wide open so I can see the light of morning, and thankfully, it's an unusually sunny day for this winter city. I sit down in the chair by the window for my morning meditation, and something comes over me. I can't settle. I'm restless. I check my phone. No urgent texts or voicemails. Something is brewing. Then an email comes in from a friend asking for help. His childhood friend is suffering with depression, and after reading my Huffington Post article, he needs my guidance. The Huffington Post. The article. I haven't read that in a long, long time. I couldn't even utter its existence after the Lilly funding fell through last year, but maybe I need to revisit it now. I read it. I sink. I cry. I cry a lot. I cry from gratitude. Like a soldier coming back from war, sobbing as he crosses over the threshold of base camp, realizing he's made it back alive. 
I'm overwhelmed by the enormity of what I've survived. When I was five years old, I asked my mom why God put me on the planet. What was my purpose in being here? She had no answer for me. Instead, she told me that I needed to explore the world and figure it out for myself. Most of my family and friends grew up being interested or passionate about one thing or another and turned it into a career. As they were building their careers and their own families, I was searching and trying to survive. Survive waves of suicidal depressions. It's time. It's time to write the book. My circle of friends and family have been asking for the book for a long time. I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to disclose the traumas and result in health crises that ensued. I wasn't ready to disclose all the secrets I kept to maintain some semblance of professional competence. The games I played to keep the shame safely locked away. The relationships that were destroyed because I was so thick. But today in December 2018, I'm ready. I'm ready to share my journey from shame to freedom, from hate to forgiveness, from confusion to clarity, from illness to wellness, from animosity to love, from deceit to truth, from darkness to light. The only reason why I'm writing this book is to help others. The Center for Disease Control says 25% of the world's population will suffer from some sort of mental illness or addiction in their lifetime. 25%. That means billions of people are suffering needlessly because they're too ashamed to seek medical help or simply don't realize that, quote, feeling this way isn't healthy and can be resolved with proper care. These are brain conditions that require proper medical treatment as well as lifestyle modifications to keep those who suffer stable and functioning. We have an ignorant public, a misled medical community, and a global pandemic affecting everyone. Today, there are 7.7 billion people on the planet. If you yourself aren't suffering, then you have someone close to you who is, and therefore you suffer. Did you know that the number one cause of death amongst youngsters ages 10 to 24 is suicide? The statistics are outrageous and affecting society at large. From copycat terrorists to random school and theater shootings, everyone on the planet is somehow directly impacted by mental illness and addiction. It is my prayer that through sharing my story, others will come forward. Others will feel safe enough to come forward and be open about their own struggles. The more people who come forward, the sooner we can start a public conversation. The sooner a public conversation can commence, the sooner we can start tearing down the walls of the stigma surrounding these insidious diseases. My dream is to have a global community which talks about brain conditions just like we currently talk about cancer, injuries, diabetes, and now AIDS. No one will ever blame a cancer patient for not being strong enough to fight their cancer away. No one will berate a person who accidentally falls and breaks their leg. No one will ever blame a diabetic for needing a shot of insulin. And no one today will read a moral riot act to an HIV patient. So many advances for so many conditions, yet brain conditions are still in the dark. If I call a hospital and ask for an admitted patient by name, I'm immediately transferred to their room. Yet if I call an inpatient mental health treatment center, I'm told, we cannot confirm or deny that person's whereabouts. AA and other 12-step meetings are still anonymous. Health insurance companies won't provide adequate coverage for mental health care. 
despite having adequate medical management or even cures for many diseases, mental health issues are still grossly neglected. Sadly, those of us who suffer are made to feel weak, broken, and inadequate due to the stigma surrounding these conditions. A chemical flaw is not a character flaw. I hope to dispel this shame-based erroneous belief as I take you on my eight-year journey to wholeness, to health, to joy, and redemption. At 45 years old, my life purpose is revealed. To globally destigmatize brain conditions while providing access to reliable resources for those in need and their loved ones through my initiative, the Live in Light Institute. Here we go. Very moving, and thank you so much for that. And you hit on a lot of very interesting points. We like to tackle some of those and bring it to light. First thing I'd like to ask you is mental health and wellness has been a dark, dark discussion for a long time. And in today's society, we see it wreaking havoc on our youth. What is it about today's youth that causes them to have so many issues with mental health that we didn't see, say, 10, 15 years ago? I think a large part of it is social media and technology. A huge part of it is with social media in particular. The kids are really isolated. There's a lot of bullying that goes on on social media. We hear about it all the time. So children ages 10 to 24, which is really the sweet spot, if you will. I think a major cause is social media. I think technology is severely isolating our youth. Gone are the days when Johnny would knock on the door and ask for Billy to come out and play. Kids are not playing kickball on the streets. They're not climbing up trees and getting into trouble together anymore. They're isolated. They're sitting inside. They're on their computers or on their phones. And it's all about social interaction through technology. There's no one-on-one. Right. Exactly. In today's society, an adolescent or youth uh, has 75 friends on social media and, and they think they're popular. But if you were to take that same youth and put them in a room with those very same people, they wouldn't really know how to interact. And that's a big part of what we're seeing is that they're losing the ability to connect with each other. Exactly. There's also another component, which is diet and lifestyle. Kids are sitting around and watching TV and on their phones. They're not out there being physically active. And also the quality of our food in this country has severely deteriorated. I mean, and I don't, we don't need to go through that. All you need to do is look in the papers and look at the media and you're hearing constantly about corn syrup and GMOs and and all sorts of things. So I think it's really a combination of things between social media and lack of physical exercise and the poor quality of our food. I think it's not just one particular thing. It's just the average lifestyle for a youngster these days, ages 10 to 24. And I also believe there's also tremendous amount of pressure these days on our youth to succeed. And I also think that that pressure leads to an enormous amount of stress. And because they have no outlet to release the stress, namely to go outside and run around, this sort of compounds on it itself. And we hear day after day about youth taking their own lives as a result. Yes, the suicide rate is, is alarmingly high. Now, one of the things that I've noticed in some of your writings and things that you've uh, highlighted, you characterize mental health issues as a brain condition. And you say that 
Addiction is one of those brain conditions. Can you kind of elaborate on that? Sure. Essentially, what an addiction is, is an individual self-medicating their mental condition, whatever it may be. So unfortunately, what happens is, okay, the average person, you get stressed out, you had a stressful day and you need something to relax yourself, whether it's a cocktail or some marijuana or whatever it may be. And that initial experience is wonderful. That initial experience is relaxing, you feel good, and you're like, this works, right? So there's that immediate solution. What happens is over a period of time, the body builds a tolerance, and then you need more of the substance in order to get the same effect that you had from your first experience. And that's when the addiction cycle starts. And then it goes down and down and down until the person's sole focus is on their next fix in order to just get through the day. And they tie that a lot to the whole concept of the, the dopamine rush in the brain and how addiction becomes that chase to try to get back to that level that a person that's using is said to never ever get back to that initial level, but they double the use and they get half the effect until, as you said, they've sunk down into that deep hole of addiction. Now, with your initiative, you say that you have three phases to its mission. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the initiative, if you would be so kind, and to elaborate on the phases that you've mentioned? Sure. There is one other thing that I wanted to address at this point regarding addiction. Addiction could be addicted to a substance or what we call a process. There's shopping, there's sex, there's work, there's, of course, your chemical addictions, marijuana and drinking and alcohol and gambling. And then, you know, so there needs mm-hmm. to be sort of a distinction made between a chemical that's ingested and that can be something as quite frankly simple as food or sugar and then it goes to alcohol and then it goes to all the drugs that's a chemical addiction a process addiction is you actually have to physically be doing something whether that's work or gambling or sex or shopping whatever that is that gets a rush of dopamine as you mentioned Um, and it's important to understand that because people don't understand the comprehensive nature of what an addiction really is with regards to the phases of Lily the first phase is to destigmatize on a global level. I spent the past nine months on a global tour to understand the cultural nuances of mental health conditions. It was both a research tour and a fundraising tour for Lily. And it was really eye-opening and heartbreaking to learn about how different countries are handling mental health conditions. For instance, there are some countries in Africa that don't even have the word for depression in their language. So if you're not even having a word to identify what the condition is, how can you actually effectively treat the condition? In India, it's a very closed matter. There's a lot of cultural nuances in terms of family honor, and it is simply not discussed. In Europe, in Western Europe, it's actually more progressive, I found, in Western Europe than in the United States. Uh, The royal family in Britain, their cause is mental health awareness. So there's been a lot of effort to that end, and I think it's sort of a 
trickled, if you will, to the other countries, which is really promising. In Israel, I found to be the most promising in terms of mental health stigma, because there really isn't a stigma. I think in large part, that's due to the fact that Israel has a mandatory military service. So you're dealing with a lot of PTSD, anxiety, stress. And as a result, the government really needs to handle that effectively, because every single male and female ages 18 once they graduate from high school in Israel, are required to serve two years for the girls, three years for the boys, minimum. So that is really effectively dealt with in Israel to a large extent because there's there's really like almost no stigma because if someone's suffering with anxiety or suffering with depression or PTSD, it's discussed. There's no derogatory terminology around it. And people are as compassionate in Israel for someone suffering with depression as they are with someone who's suffering with cancer or any other disease. On the opposite side of that same token is the mental health care that they do have in Israel for people. So I learned a lot there and we hope to bring that forth with Lily on a, on a global level. So that's part one Mm -hmm. of phase one. Then there's creating a platform for access to reliable mental health care. Unfortunately, here in the United States, you can buy a nice size house, hire a few medical staff, and call yourself a rehab center. There's no standard of care and it's heartbreaking. The recidivism rate for rehabilitation centers, both for mental health issues and addiction, is 60 to 90% right now, which means that almost everyone who goes in is going to repeat it. So having a benchmark for mental health care is really important. And just like the Food and Drug Administration has their standard to make sure the public is safe for both food and drugs, there needs to be some some baseline for mental health care. Lily is working on that as well. There's two parts. One is to destigmatize, and the second is to provide access to reliable health care. We are providing at no cost speakers to educate the public about what mental health conditions are really about. And so with that, we need to make sure we have enough funding. So whether it's a corporation or a place of worship or a school, we will have a Lily speaker speak to the audience, wherever they may be. And that will enable us to really provide the necessary information so that the public will understand what the magnitude of this stigma really is about. I mentioned my book. I read the preface just before. I think that'll help people as well, because this is coming from the perspective of a sufferer of depression. And it's important to note that I've had my own experience with essentially being misdiagnosed. It wasn't just depression. I'm actually bipolar. And I thought my manic phases were simply being a productive New Yorker. (laughs) When did you realize that you had been misdiagnosed? That's a very interesting point. Yes. um, I was describing how productive I was to a friend of mine who is a therapist and how elated I was to be able to work three nights in a row writing my book. And she said to me, Danny, you need to sleep. And I said, yeah, I know, but I'm getting so much work done. Like I'm in my, I'm feeling good. I'm jazzed up. My focus is fabulous. And she said, sweetheart, that's mania. 
That's not being a productive New Yorker. That's mania, which forced me to look at my whole condition in a completely different light. And as a result of that, I'm now, thank God, stable. And I know how to handle this condition. This is something else that's important to uh, point out to your listeners. Mental health conditions are just that. They're conditions. We haven't found a cure for depression or bipolar. We haven't found a cure for diabetes. Just like a diabetic needs an insulin shot, this condition whatever it may be, depression, anxiety, bipolar, manic, schizophrenia, these conditions need to be monitored and diligently looked after to make sure that there are no episodes. So I think with our process of educating the public, it will not only destigmatize these conditions, but more importantly, people will be able to identify it in themselves and the people around them that will help people get the necessary care. There's one other thing that is really exciting that is part of phase one in terms of destigmatizing, and that is Light Aid. This was inspired by Live Aid, the famous concert in 1985, which helped yes. the famine in Africa. We are going to produce Light Aid on July 13th of 2021, which will be a global concert to destigmatize mental illness and addiction. So, your book is being released next year. Correct. And then the following year, then you will be embarking on launching Light Aid. Yeah, we're actually launching Light Aid with Lily because the project is so tremendous. It actually requires its own organization to actually produce it because it's not just going to be concerts in. London and in Philadelphia, in every single time zone around the globe that has a venue, essentially a stadium that fits 50,000 or more, we are going to have a two and a half hour concert in each time zone simultaneously so that regardless of the culture and regardless of your gender, your nationality, your sexual orientation, your religious beliefs, we're all humans. And the one thing that every single human being can connect to is music. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, also, one of the things I want to, you know, have you address is the strategy for phase two. You mentioned in your some of your writings, your IRCs. Can you just uh, elaborate on that just a little bit? Sure. So the Lilly IRC stand for Integrative Recovery Centers. I was in treatment myself in an inpatient facility. And because of my background in nutrition and yoga, there were a lot of voids in the program. And this is considered to be one of the best programs in the country. It's called The Refuge, a healing place in Ocala, Florida. I had heard from many people that it's considered the Rolls Royce of rehab, that when you're really serious about recovery and getting sober, you go to the refuge. And even that considered, you know, the gold star of treatment, there were variables that needed to be addressed in terms of nutrition, in terms of mind-body exercises. And that's what essentially Lily wants to create in its second phase, our IRCs. And what we're looking to do is to work with various corporations that have several rehabs facilities and then uh, use one of their facilities as a prototype to prove that the IRC model is more effective. And then once that's proven, 
we can integrate that into all of their rehab centers. So it's not only the actual rehab center itself. What our current model is aimed to do is to reduce the recidivism rate by 50% within 10 years of launch. And it goes from pre-inpatient care with trained intervention specialists that meet the standard of Lilly approval to the actual rehab experience. And then as they are phasing out of the rehab experience, within two weeks of their discharge, they will connect with a coach. And that relationship needs to be secured prior to the discharge from rehab. And they'll be working with their coach one-on-one. And there's a whole 12-month program for that. At the end of 12 months, with the approval of the coach, they've got a good handle on their recovery. Upon completion of the Lilly IRC program, which is essentially a 12-month protocol, Lilly clients will be offered employment. They can be a Lilly coach or they can be a Lilly speaker and be an ambassador and go and speak about their own recovery and to help not only with destigmatizing, but also with educating the public. Thank you so much for giving us more information about that. When you talked about your battles with discovering that you were bipolar, so how is one able to identify the triggers. So how did you know once you were told that, no, that's not normal uh, Mm -hmm. being productive, that's bipolar? What were your trigger signs that you could kind of say, you know what, I better take a step back? Because I think a lot of times people are misdiagnosed, you know, not only because of the stigma, but because they don't realize what's happening to them. Mm -hmm. So how were you able to, to get past that? So it's interesting because I'd like to point out that the bipolar diagnosis came after my inpatient treatment. It came after a decade of suffering with depression. The diagnosis of bipolar came 14 months after I was discharged from inpatient care. And it was really noted when my friend, as I mentioned, said, that's not being a productive New Yorker. Staying up for three nights straight without being tired to write your book is mania. It's not being a high productive a highly productive New Yorker. So now that I'm aware of this, I can can feel myself going into mania when I'm unable to shut my brain down. When I get up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom and I start thinking about things that I'm really excited about and I get so excited, I can't go back to sleep because I'm, I'm so thrilled about what's going on with developing Lily or the book or whatever's going on. And then I find myself sitting down at the laptop and, and writing what has been tremendous, tremendous is twofold. One is the transcendental meditation that I practice daily for 20 minutes, twice a day and taking medication, which is really important in terms of stabilizing. So I have a background in nutrition and yoga. Mm -hmm. And I fought taking medication for so long because I was really concerned about it hindering my creativity. And then I had no choice. I was up against a wall. I had been in a full-time job in Atlanta and I couldn't take off to do a cleanse, um, which really helped me in terms of uh, depressions. So I had no choice but to take medication because I had to get out of bed and get to work instead of doing real estate. In real estate, it was easier. In real estate, I was working for myself and I would set the time 
times and so on and so forth. And if I needed to take off for two weeks because I was hitting rock bottom in a depression, I could just get on a plane and go eat some vegetables and do yoga and cleanse away the depression. It worked every single time. And then I met with a depression where I couldn't take off for a cleanse. So I had no choice. So the part that's really interesting that you just said, Danny, is that you resisted the medication. And in previous conversations that you and I have had, you mentioned that a person who's going to be battling this and and being victorious has to be cognizant of the mind-body-spirit connection. Talk about that a little bit, please. So with regards to the mind-body-soul, it is key in terms of managing these conditions and you need to balance that and you need to nurture it daily or you can very easily get out of balance. So for instance, when I'd be falling into a depression and would run to a cleanse, the reason why the cleanses were so effective was because it would clean out my gut. Serotonin is produced in the gut and if you're on an inflammatory diet for too long, the gut produces mucus and mucus will block all the nutrients from getting into your system. So it it doesn't even matter if you're taking vitamins. It doesn't even matter what you're ingesting because so much of it is not actually going into your system. So I go to a cleanse and I'm drinking wheatgrass and I'm having a lot of uh, vegetables, not fruit, but vegetables and colonics and massages and yoga and relaxing. And this combined really cleans out the gut, enables me to relax. The serotonin naturally starts manufacturing again and the depression, which I used to call the eight. 100 pound gorilla <laughs> leaves. He takes off. And so this is how I manage. Now, it's important also to understand that this is an ongoing daily management. And I'm hypersensitive because Lily's getting ready to launch in January, officially launch in January. And I need all the energy I can get. There's no way that we can pull this off if the founder is in bed with a depression or in a manic phase. So it's really important that I manage this effectively. And I'm happy to report that 29 19 was a stellar year for me. Very good. Very good. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, I also want to ask you to address is in launching this initiative, you mentioned that one of the phases is addressing the homeless issue. So can you talk about that, how it's tied to Lily and how it's tied to, you know, obviously mental health and why we find so many people who are homeless actually having uh, mental health issues and how Lily is going to address that? Sure. The only difference between me and the homeless person you walk past by today is that I have two amazing parents that never gave up on me. They just never gave up. And it got really hard for a long time. And they said, we're just, we're with you and we're going to figure this out. Not everyone is so blessed to have such amazing parents. And um, I'm sorry, I get very emotional. Absolutely. My parents have been to hell and back 20 times over with my condition, but they never gave up on me. The people you see in the streets, all of them, All of them have a mental health condition. And usually it's so severe that they just run away from their network. Whether it's a psychotic episode or whatever they're suffering with, they leave and they don't care. They can't care because there is an illness in their brain that's causing them to be homeless. I mean, if you think about it, who wants to be homeless? Who doesn't want shelter and good food daily? I mean, these are basic human needs. 
So the way Lily is going to address this, this is 10 years post-launch. We'll start phase three, which is to create kibbutz-like communities for homeless people all over the world. Uh, For those who are unaware of what a kibbutz is, it's a um, community living development in Israel that became very popular when Israel was established back in 48. It usually revolves around um, agriculture, but oftentimes, especially now, now there are kibbutzes that have different products like producing candy or producing sunglasses, and essentially the entire community contributes to the economic well-being of the community. So it's kind of like a socialist system. So the idea is to have lily communities for the homeless where they can go and have shelter and good healthy food in dorm-like settings, and they'll have access to reliable mental health care, and they won't need to be homeless anymore. And our hope is that it's very interesting, the homeless community. They're very tight. It's very, 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 very difficult to befriend someone who's homeless. But once that relationship is established, you will never leave them. It's just the way they operate. So my hope is that these communities gain enough respect and a great reputation that they'll want to go willingly to a community. Oftentimes I hear from the homeless that they have no interest in going to a shelter. There's a lot of abuse there. It's oftentimes not clean and they'd rather be on the street. So there needs to be something that they can trust and rely on and feel nurtured. And I think once we establish that reputation, then they'll willingly, happily find their new home. Absolutely. Now, one other point is you talked about in some of your writings that you suffered a very terrible accident, which then sunk you into those bouts of depression. What I wanted to ask you, Danny, is what parallels do you see between what you went through and someone who's, there's a term we use in social work and mental health, it's uh, ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. Mm-hmm. So a child who was traumatized at sure. a very early age mm-hmm. and never dealt with that and then that stays with them and they mm-hmm. never eradicate it. They never mm-hmm. cleanse themselves. Mm-hmm. Make a connection sure. between what, sure. what that mm-hmm. mental illness struggle is and yours. It's actually the same thing. So a trauma is a trauma. Whether you were sexually molested as a child or you hopped around from foster home to foster home and never had any stability, which is what children so desperately need when they're growing up, or you fall off a horse when you're 33 years old or you're in a car accident when you're 15 and your best friend dies. These are all traumas. And what happens, the brain, it's just fascinating. There's a part of the brain that essentially absorbs the trauma and much like a sponge, right? So initially, what happens is, is that people don't get the right mental health care when they go through a trauma. It just stays with them and they go on, they move about their life. And that stays in the part of the brain where when another trauma happens, it goes into the same part. So eventually, this part of the brain will get saturated much like a sponge and it starts leaking out just like a sponge affecting other areas of the brain. Memory, self-regulation, logical reasoning, and the brain starts to suffer because there was never any comprehensive trauma therapy which was administered at the beginning of the first trauma. So they're all traumas. There is no such thing as one trauma bigger than another. A trauma is a trauma is a trauma. Exactly, exactly. And so because of our lack of mental health care in this area, it manifests and based upon your genetic predisposition, it will manifest as depression, 
anxiety, bipolar, schizophrenia. I mean, in, in all the various brain conditions that people suffer with. The interesting thing is the refuge, the inpatient treatment center I went to, is based in trauma. It is the leading treatment center for trauma therapy. And I believe that's why it was so effective. I mean, I was out for 14 months straight. It was the longest stretch I had of 14 months post-accident, which happened in 2006. So fast forward, I graduated from the refuge Christmas of 2015. So it was almost 10 years. And then I finally went through a 14-month period where there was no depression, where before I was cycling um, every six to nine months. So that was really promising as a result of, of the trauma treatment. And then I went on medication, which has stabilized me. Okay, that's that's very commendable. What I thought was most motivating and inspiring was that you've decided to dedicate your life to destigmatizing the misconceptions around mental illness and, and not only doing that, but also making sure people have access to to care. You know, I think the three phases that you're putting together with Lily are just, you know, magnificent. But right now, if somebody's listening to this podcast, what, what are some things you can uh, recommend or places that they can get assistance and help for any type of brain condition, uh, which causes them to have mental health issues? I think the best way for a person to get help is through NAMI, the National Association for Mental Illness. I think they are probably one of the most well-known organizations. And if you call them, you can just Google and call the local chapter and they have resources for people. Just want to add to that. I'm going to do a shameless plug about the National Association of Social Workers, uh, which I'm a member of. Uh, also provide a wide variety of resources for people who need assistance with mental illness uh, and addiction. But in your case, this initiative looks like it's going to evolve into something, as you said, global. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and it's going to be a positive benefit to many people. So the motivation was your struggles. What's the inspiration? I'm the voice for the people who don't have one. Love it. Love it. It is such hell, such inner hell. And society says, you know, put on a happy face. Smile though your heart is breaking. <laughs> Never let them see you sweat. <laughs> right. And um, because of this pressure that we have, and all of us, people don't effectively handle whatever's going on in their life because they just don't have the resources and usually maybe not even the knowledge. I belong to those people. In a strong, powerful voice, you are uh, indeed evolving to be, and I think it's very commendable. So I want to say before we wrap up that your efforts today are going to have a ripple effect on many people's lives for decades and decades to come. So I want to commend you for that. And I'd like to say that, you know, you mentioned also about the language that we use. And I, whenever I talk about mental illness, I like to always share the fact that when we talk about ill, um, we look at the word ill and the first letter is I. And so I am ill. So mm -hmm. I'm fighting this alone. Mm -hmm. But when we get well, the first two letters are W-E. and mm -hmm. it's we are I well. love it. I and love it mental health in order for us to get health we have to heal yes so on that note i'm first going to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule i know you got a lot of stuff going on and uh really exciting to see the energy that you're emanating with this project that you have tell our listeners a little bit about how they may be able to reach out to you contact you and stay abreast of uh, what's taking place so they can keep up with you know the various phases sure 
Really. Sure. Thank you. Um, we are still developing the website, so it hasn't launched yet. So I do not have a website to refer everyone to. I do have an email address. Okay. It's danielle.kirk at lily2019.org. And I'll spell that out. D-A-N-I-E-L-L-E dot kirk, K-I-R-K at L-I-L-I two zero one nine dot o-r-g and if you shoot me an email i will respond within 24 hours awesome awesome so uh just as we get ready to wrap up we'd like to thank our dynamic passionate guest miss danielle kirk and she's giving you her contact information once again that's danielle d-a-n-i-e-l-l-e dot kirk k-i-r-k at l-i-l-i 2019.org and make sure you reach out and stay abreast of the developments this has been Silas, your e-journalism social work advocate. You've been listening to the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast, and we thank you for listening. This is Silas, your e-journalism social work advocate and host of the show. You've been listening to the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast. This and all other programs are available on the Apple iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Anchor podcast platforms. Go to any search engine and type in Kelson on the Air in the search window to hear this show in its entirety. Thank you for tuning in. This has been a Kelson Communications production.